Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, August 26, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Last week, the court in Washington, D.C. heard closing arguments in the Department of Justice's bid to block Penguin Random House's acquisition of Simon & Schuster. As a veteran court reporter, give us your take on the case as it was presented and maybe help us make sense of what happens now. Sure. So I think there are a few top line observations that I'd highlight, and I'll just state them and then we can go over them a little more. But you know, my first impression is that in terms of the case, now that it's been fully presented, despite some highly boring stretches and some highly entertaining comments from publishing leaders and agents, I think there were very few surprises here over the course of this three-week trial. It largely followed the script that was laid out in the pre-trial briefs, which we've discussed on this program quite a bit in the past. So in last week's closing arguments, Both sides basically just made their key points again. You know, the government argued that Penguin Random House's acquisition is going to harm competition and not necessarily for the downstream market, which is, of course, books that readers buy because book prices are not likely to go up, but for authors who are going to find fewer independent bidders for their works. And as our listeners know, they made this case by looking at a critical submarket of books, which we all know by now, anticipated top sellers. These are books with advances over $250,000. DOJ lead attorney John Reed made the point succinctly in his closing argument. He said, this is not about the passion of publishers for books and authors. This case is about the largest publisher, Penguin Random House, cementing its position at the top of the market. On the other hand, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster lawyers argued that this merger was actually going to be good for authors and that the combined firm was going to push the remaining big four publishers to compete harder. And in their closing argument, they doubled down on their claim that because the government could not show sufficient metrics that would make this merger per se illegal or presumptively illegal, that they had to go and create this fictional submarket that is books with advances over $250,000, which PRH lawyers say just doesn't exist. The only reason we are here is because the government has created artificial concentration to create artificial harm, uh, PRH lead attorney Daniel Petricelli said in his closing argument. And if that line sounds familiar, it should, because it's the same line he used to open the case with. Uh, Over the course of the last three weeks, the defense, of course, tried to poke holes in the government's assumptions, suggesting that, well... No one really knows how best-selling books are made, right? It's all kind of gut feelings and luck. Uh, And whether or not you buy that argument, there is an element of truth to it, right? Books with lower advances often become, well, I wouldn't say often, but they can become breakout hits, and books with huge advances routinely flop. This is true. But I think the key point in the defense's favor was about internal competition, You know that competition between editors at Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House and how we'll bid against one another. The editors from this merged company will still be allowed to bid against one another. And, you know, the government's definition of the market, because that competition is going to still exist, Penguin Random House lawyers say, that the government's definition of this market was sort of ill-defined and more to the point, misapplied here. And, you know, closing the trial, I found it interesting that Simon & Schuster attorney Stephen Fishbein argued for the merger in his words because Penguin Random House, he said, is fully committed to books and it's a good cultural fit. And I think that's very likely true, right? I think Penguin Random House probably is a really good place for Simon & Schuster to land, all things being equal. More on that in a bit. 
of course, you know, it helps that, you know, Penguin Random House bid half a billion dollars more than any of the underbidders here. So there's that too. If the testimony followed tracks laid down by the pre-trial briefs, Andrew, how do you feel three expensive weeks in court have impacted the case? In other words, do you think the defense attorneys got through to Judge Florence Pan, or did she resist them? The heart of the matter is my impression from spending most of the first week in court and then following the transcripts closely as my colleagues took over is to say that, in my opinion, Judge Florence Pan seemed wholly convinced that the government had made its case. You know, throughout the trial, she asked tough questions of both sides with equal skepticism, especially of the economic experts that came on trial. But what really stood out is that the defense's strategy was clearly to create confusion around the evidence, the evidence of how this market works. You know, publishing is just some quirky business. You know, no one really knows how books are going to sell. It's all just random and, you know, kind of based on a wing and a prayer. And Pan was not pulled down those rabbit holes. Remember, our, our, our expert from uh, Cleveland Marshall College of Law, Chris Sagers, had called these rabbit holes before, right? He said that the government could make its case if it didn't get pulled down these rabbit holes. And this was it. I mean, this was, you know, sure, publishing is a quirky little business in some ways. But at the end of the day, rational economics still apply. And I think Florence Pan was able to see that clearly. Now, does that translate into a victory for the government here? And I'm not quite there yet because, you know, for all we heard in court over the last three weeks, there's still a very novel question of law at issue here. And that's whether the slice of market that the government focused on anticipated top selling books, whether that's enough to carry the day. Uh, once again, Judge Pan seemed utterly convinced that this merger would obviously impact competition for book rights. Uh, and especially in this uh, market segment that the government outlined of advances above 250000 But again, is that enough under the law to block this merger? That's still a question for me, though I imagine it is a question that Judge Florence Pan has a pretty good handle on already. And you know, finally, just a couple of other quick observations to throw out here, too. And one is that you know, I've resisted the idea – that this trial was some kind of trial of the century in publishing. And, you know, my own editors wanted to call it that at one point, but it isn't. It just isn't, right? And I think the trial showed that. It's basically a regulatory action, right? And, you know, the, you know, the picture of publishing presented over this last few weeks, you know, it, it kind of has to be seen that way. I mean, it was tremendously entertaining on social media. Uh, my colleague John Marr live tweeted this, which was incredible because trials are so often – uh, electronics are barred, and we're not able to get that kind of immediacy. But we were able to see these comments come through in real time. And it was really something to hear these publishing leaders and these agents talk awkwardly, so awkwardly at times about the business. But we have to remember that they were doing so in the context of a trial. And most of this testimony was remarkably basic. And a lot of it was very remedial. At one point, Michael Peach was asked what printing is. So there's really very little real insight into the business of publishing, even from the economic experts. In fact, especially from the economic experts, because a lot of their data was blacked out. And I think the portrayal of the business from executives who were put on the stand, well, it was not delivered. It was not a true attempt to understand the publishing business, but to win a case. And I say that to get to my last point, which is however this case goes, no one wins. We have to prepare for that. You know, if the deal is blocked, it is likely that Simon and Schuster's next buyer is not going to be as good a home for the publisher as PRH might be. 
Uh, a lot of people in publishing believe that, and I, I'm you know almost certain that that's the case too. In fact, it could be far worse and far messier for Simon and Schuster if it lands outside of Penguin Random House. And you know this trial has featured a ton of baseball metaphors, so I'm going to add one more here in terms of antitrust enforcement. Judge Pan is not going to hit a nine-run home run here, right? There is no nine-run home run. And the point is I'm making here is that we've allowed antitrust enforcement and industry consolidation and publishing and in other industries to get so far out of control that it's hard for me to see how spiking this deal here is really going to make a huge difference to authors or consumers. The die has been cast, you know, author advances, whatever. I mean, the ship has sailed, or however you want to put it. I really don't think there's a very good outcome here. No one really wins here, at least in the short term. Now, if this decision proves to be the beginning of a new era of robust antitrust enforcement that includes the unwinding of some of the last decade's excesses, okay, you can talk to me then. So we'll see where we are in 10 or 20 years. But after a very entertaining, at least on social media, few weeks uh, with people rooting against this deal. And indeed, I think the merger it's proven now is very unpopular within the industry. I think we all have to temper our expectations of what this action, what this regulatory action blocking this deal or blessing this deal can actually accomplish. And the next steps are simple enough. We've got one more set of filings from the parties and then the judge's ruling. Yeah, so each side is going to make its exhibits public, and their final briefs will, I imagine, largely focus on matters of law and how the testimony sort of fits there. And, you know, the, we've been promised a speedy verdict here, and the, the, you know, the date that's been out there is we're supposed to have a decision hopefully by November, probably by Thanksgiving. And, you know, if I'm betting on this, if I'm taking the over-under as to when this decision is going to come out, I'm actually going to bet the under. I think it's going to come in quicker because given Judge Pan's preparedness and her engagement, I think she is actually well along in writing her opinion here. So I actually expect a decision to come a little sooner rather than later. I wouldn't be surprised if we got it in early November, even late October. And of course, we could very well see appeals, depending on however this case goes. Uh, given the novel claims put forth here, I met a lot of lawyers in Washington when I was in court who were just in court to watch this because they say the issues here are so novel that they expect that there's going to be appeals and it's going to have impacts in other cases. So while we're done for now with this trial, uh, we'll be back talking about this case after the final briefs are in on September 7th. And, of course, the fallout from the case, one way or another, after the decision comes in, uh, won't be far behind. And I'm sure we'll be discussing that as well. With the public portion of the trial now ended, are you willing to say who you think has won, Andrew? Will the deal be approved or is Simon Schuster going to be looking for a new partner? Yeah, so I would be very surprised if the deal is approved. You know, given Judge Pan's questions from the trial and the struggles the defense faced in trying to create confusion around the acquisition of book rights, uh, the overwhelming impression that I got is that, you know, obviously Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster is going to be a gigantic publishing company, which on its face, you'd have to look at this and say, there's no way that merger ever gets approved. But at the same time, it's kind of a coin flip for me because – the case the government crafted, while very ingenious, is so, again, a novel, no pun intended, it's hard to know if there really is sufficient legal basis for the government to block this deal. You know, remember, at the start of this case, uh, Chris Sagers, you know, the Cleveland Marshall professor of, of law, who I re rely on a lot for to explain these things to me, said he thought this trial was going to be hard to call 
because in the end, it's a fairly standard horizontal merger that would take the big five to the big four. And he noted that in modern antitrust, these deals are rarely blocked when a merger leaves three or more firms in a market, which is no doubt why the government chose to pursue this narrow monopsony case here. And frankly, given the case put forth uh, by the government, it seems you know the matter can actually be cured by a consent degree, right? I'm surprised we even got this far because – if there was a consent decree entered saying that Simon Schuster and Penguin Random House editors have to be allowed to compete with each other, that kind of solves the problem. So I just have a lot of questions about the legal basis for blocking this, even though I think Judge Pan does believe that the merged company is presumptively illegal, is too big. So I guess that's a long way of saying I'm going to avoid a prediction here <laughs> on who's going to actually carry the day. Uh, while I believe the court will likely block the deal, I just don't know enough to say whether the DOJ's case is legally sound. So I'm going to go ahead and stick with my previous statement here. In this case, whatever the final outcome from Judge Pan, no one wins. Well, we always win having Andrew Albanese on our show. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, in July, Elsevier launched a global collaboration to understand the impact of the pandemic on confidence in research and to learn how researchers may better maneuver in a rapidly changing scientific landscape. Anne Kitson, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of the Lancet and Cell Press, leads the Confidence in Research Project for Elsevier. Kitson believes the increased public and professional attention on research and researchers is changing the conduct of science. So I think it's transparency, transparency, transparency. I think there's um, a real hunger and um, will that we can, we can harness there. What we need to do is we need to aim for consistency and cooperation across the board. What we saw in the pandemic, of course, was that the virus does not respect country boundaries. Confidence in Research, coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Philosophy of Content podcast from CCC.